Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Kat Dwyer back to the show. Kat, it is great to catch up with you once again. And uh, let's tell people just a little bit, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. Um, So, yeah, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, um, I work for a conservation research institute in Bozeman, Montana, um, called the Property and Environment Research Center. Um, And we're the home of free market environmentalism. So we look for sort of private cooperative solutions to environmental challenges. And I I have to confess this. You have done a lot to get me to broaden my perspective on environmental concerns. I've been kind of closed minded in the past simply because I've had the perception that, well, you know, some environmentalists are very hardcore, um, dare I say, almost Marxist in in their approach. But uh, but I really like the way that you approach things. And and we're going to talk about an article that you've written uh, for. Uh, this is for InsideSources.com. It's time to increase domestic energy production. So I'm guessing you're probably feeling the pain at the pump as, as well as other people. Oh, yeah, I absolutely am. Uh, we're, we're over $4 a gallon here in Montana and in my home state of California, you know, they're over six. So in some places. So, yeah, we're, we're all feeling the pain at the pump. And, in, and inflation, of course, is driving a big part of that. Um, so I think it's really making us have to get sort of real and serious about our uh, energy policies and our climate policies here in the U.S. Um, And, you know, despite President Biden's contention that green energy is the solution to higher gas prices, um, we know by now that renewables alone are not a viable alternative to fossil fuels. Um, And that's because of their intermittent power generation and our current lack of battery storage capacity. Um, so they're just they're not a, a serious alternative to fossil fuels. Um, so it's it's now widely acknowledged that um, any sort of green energy transition requires partnering renewables like solar and wind with a reliable baseload energy source. And that baseload energy can be either fossil fuels like natural gas or it can be nuclear. Um, and in my opinion, I'm a big fan of nuclear. I've written about that a lot in the past. Um, but until that option is more scalable, we really have no choice but to turn to fossil fuels. So I, I like to say nuclear should be our future, but fossil fuels must be our present. Can I just can we go down a little sidetrack here for a moment to talk just for a moment? Why isn't nuclear energy more scalable at this point? You know, um, that's a, it's complicated, but I think the, the short answer is uh basically because of regulation. Um, There was quite for several decades now, we're kind of maybe starting to emerge from it, but in some ways still in it, um, a really concerted campaign uh, to sort of discredit nuclear based on fears of, you know, Fukushima-like meltdowns, right? Um, And so it's been the regulations placed on it and getting a new facility online um, are so onerous that it makes it makes it incredibly expensive and time consuming. So, um, and, and then of course it's competing with other alternatives like solar and wind that are heavily subsidized, right? So um, it's kind of been placed at a disadvantage because of government regulation. Okay, I appreciate that explanation. Now, back to <laughs> energy, increasing domestic energy production. Um, I noticed one, one of the very first things that President Biden did when he took office was shut down the Keystone XL pipeline. 
So right off the bat, I have this perception that uh, perhaps he was a little bit hostile to the fossil fuel sector. Uh, how is that affecting us in terms of not just our, our you know, well-being here at home, our, our pocketbooks when we go to gas up and the cost of everything arriving in the stores? How does that tie into our national security? Oh, for sure. It definitely ties into our national security. Um, and, and I guess I'll first start off by just saying that, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry, just like any other industry, is going to respond to Biden's climate messaging. Um, and to kind of illustrate that point, uh, there was a recent survey by the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Um, and that survey found that 59 percent of oil and gas executives said pressure from investors is the primary reason that major companies are restraining production growth. Um so they, you know, like anyone else, have to um, sort of invest capital, right, in in producing, in increasing and scaling their production capacity, and that's that capital investment requires risk, and um, and it requires some level of confidence that policymakers aren't going to throw sand in the gears of your operation. Um, so when the president's talking about phasing out fossil fuels, of course, companies are going to be reluctant to invest in in its future. Um, and you're right, uh, Biden did uh, block the Keystone XL pipeline, and then he also paused federal oil and gas leasing. Um, and I think both of those things, along with with sort of anti-fossil fuel um, appointment nominees and that sort of thing, kind of sent flashing red signals to the industry that the tide was turning. Um, and I'll note that the leasing pause uh, has since been blocked in court, um, but the administration is appealing that decision um, and technically, this is something that Democrats like to point to, but it's it kind of lacks the full context. Um, technically, the administration um, has approved permits to drill new oil wells, but it hasn't actually conducted any onshore auctions for new leases. So effectively, the ban is is preventing um, any new actual sales of, of leases to drill on federal lands. Um, so, so all of that, of course, is going to kind of stymie the growth of our domestic production. Um, and then in terms of national security, well, the Biden administration right now, um, you know, finally was pressured by Congress to, to stop importing Russian oil. Um, and that was a small share of our, our overall, you know, consumption. But still, we were importing from Russia. Um, so he finally was pressured to, to stop that. However, now he's trying to to maybe cut a deal with the Iranians or the Venezuelans to uh, to potentially lift sanctions so we can start importing oil from them, which to me is just I mean, it's it's totally reckless. Um, those are arguably maybe even more dangerous regimes. Right. Um, and then the irony of all ironies is that uh, the uh, Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov is actually mediating the negotiations with Iran over lifting sanctions to start importing oil. So at the same time that we're punishing Russia, we're all letting them negotiate our deal with the leading state sponsor of terror. Um, so, you know, none of it really makes sense. And obviously the better solution would be to get out of the way of the fossil fuel industry domestically and increase our production here at home. Talk to us about the Jones Act and how that affects uh, the, the ability to produce and and to, to ship, you know, energy here locally. Yeah. So the Jones Act um, is kind of this, it's sort of a favorite of libertarians to, to point to as like an obvious thing that should be reformed. Um, so it's a World War I era regulation that essentially makes it really costly and cumbersome 
to ship American crude from the Gulf of Mexico to our coastal ports. Um, so because there are no pipelines connecting our coast to American crude in the Permian Basin, which is our largest oil field, um, we have to import from overseas. So um, sort of the lack of pipelines and the Jones Act are pretty much the driving factors for why we're even importing uh, Russian oil to begin with. Um, so eliminating this kind of arcane regulation really should be a no-brainer. Um, and then the other thing that's kind of a just a, a reality that the left isn't pleased with, but it's becoming increasingly obvious to me, is that we really just need to be building more pipelines um, because we have, you know, we, we've got a lot in the Permian Basin, but we just can't distribute it across the country effectively. Um, so, so pipeline construction and doing away with cumbersome regulation would be a good first step. Is it likely that uh, any kind of shift is going to take place politically that would uh, would allow that mindset or um, is the Biden administration dug in pretty deep on this issue? You know, unfortunately, right now, it seems like they're dug in um, and the Democrats realize that they have to do something. Um, And unfortunately, they're kind of going back to their standard playbook of 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 fingering, you know, big oil as the boogeyman, that's the problem, right? And so um, like Bernie Sanders, for example, has introduced um, or he's proposed the Ending Corporate Greed Act, which would slap a 95% tax on excess profits of corporations worth more than 500 million in, in yearly revenue. Um, and he made a point that if this had been in place last year, Chevron would have paid an additional 12.9 billion in taxes. Um, and then the idea, so the idea basically is, tax the oil companies, and then whatever revenues you get from that, we can write checks and send those to the American people, which is just, it's so economically illiterate because, <laughs> because one, increasing the cost of production is going to be that, you know, that cost will be passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices. Yep. Um, and then subsidizing supply with more, you know, free money from the government is only going to drive inflation higher and drive prices higher. So, both are really bad decisions, but it seems like they're dug in with their their sort of standard position. All right. Again, we are talking with Kat Dwyer. She is a Young Voices associate contributor. She is also she also works with the uh, Property and Environment Research Center. And you are the host of the uh, Whiskey Bench podcast. Where can people? Is- oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I would thank you for, for mentioning that. Yeah. The Whiskey Bench podcast um, is is a, a show, a weekly show with my buddy. We have cocktails and we kind of talk shop about politics and economics. Um, and we're on any streaming platform. So Spotify, iTunes, you name it, we're there. OK, it's a great show, by the way. And I'm so glad that you are uh, putting your voice out there and, and calling for this increase in domestic energy production. I just hope that uh, the right people will start listening so we can pay less for gas. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Brian. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Mark Bewley to the program. Mark, this is our first time visiting. So if you would, introduce yourself and tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, So my name is Mark Bewley. I am currently an MA fellow at 
George Mason University, the Mercatus Center there. Um, I have a focus and a specialty in healthcare policy. I've been working with a team there, um, analyzing a variety of things, getting into Medicare, Medicaid, uh, different ideas for uh, how we can improve our system here in the U.S. So, well, and 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 Medicare and Medicaid are are very sacred topics, at least for politicians. I mean, you know, nobody wants to be the politician who's going to either reduce or cut back, you know, or even eliminate those programs. Um, you mentioned in this article that I'm looking at from FreeThePeople.org that uh, you know politicians seems to seem to love this, but uh, they would be wise to remember Australian healthcare during COVID, which can actually help us learn a thing or two about the problems with Medicare for all. Set the stage for us. What what can we learn from the way Australia handled COVID that uh, would also translate well to our own situation with Medicare, with uh, Medicare rather for all? Yeah, yeah. So um, an interesting thing happened uh, back in in December of last year. We had um, a threat come out of the government of Australia, specifically uh, the government of New South Wales. And they were uh, sort of batting around a proposal that would essentially um, remove unvaccinated citizens from the list of people who could receive the quote unquote universal health care that is provided to Australians. So basically, it's a system where the universal health care is not so universal. Um, and I think that that shows us something about about the way that when we decide to give the the power of an industry, the healthcare industry, over to government bureaucrats, um, what we find is that they may not really have our best interests in mind. Boy, to put it mildly, I mean, look, I mm-hmm. followed very closely the the coverage of Australia's response to COVID and New South Wales. I mean, Australia generally took a pretty hard line approach, but New South Wales was especially strict. So mm-hmm. that's that's a very chilling idea that, uh, you know, if if you're not vaccinated, if you if you don't meet this qualification, well, you know, maybe you should be denied health care. Um, seems like yeah. competition is, is a good thing after all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, and that's a big reason that uh, health care sort of stuck out to me as as a place to um, to really dig in, in into the policy, because, you know, I'm a I'm a master's student. I I worked for a few years in the private sector. I had my own private health insurance um, and then I became a master's student. I, I went off my employer based insurance And I found it extremely difficult to find a plan that worked well for me. Uh, You know, I'm a young, healthy 26 year old man. And um, and, you know, the the way that our system works, even though we aren't fully to the Medicare for all system, which would be an even smaller set of choices for us, we have one health insurance provider that we can receive coverage from even now with our semi private system, I still found it hard to find a good health insurance plan for me. And so I think when people consider these things like Medicare for all, what they're really not understanding is how much their choice for health insurance will be limited. And, and, and New South Wales is a, a perfect example of how that can be really catastrophic. You know, a decision that was once thought of to be a private decision, what you do with your own vaccinations, it's, it's 
private. It's a personal choice. And yet, you know, New, Th- New South Wales shows us that once we give that power over to the government, what was once private becomes a matter of public debate where my health care is, is being decided by a bureaucrat. As you point out in your article, this looks like, uh, you know, such proposals of uh, Medicare for all would also be another giant step toward that full-fledged universal single-payer system, which um, I'm only looking back a few years, but during the Obama administration, that was definitely a goal on the part of some within the federal government. And I don't think that goal has ever entirely gone away, has it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the, one of the most scary things, um, even if we look back at the uh, the last uh, Democratic primary election um, for the president, you see, I mean, even our current vice president, Kamala Harris, had uh, had a proposal that that was a, a sort of a overtime piecemeal moving step by step toward a single payer system was was sort of Kamala Harris's plan. And we saw that also with like Bernie Sanders's plan, Elizabeth Warren. And, and it's it's an interesting point you bring up because I think with with Australia specifically, they still have options for private health insurance. Now, now many people aren't expecting to have to go to private health insurance or pay those premiums, but they at least have the option. The plans that have been laid out by Kamala Harris, by Elizabeth Warren, by Bernie Sanders, those plans all completely eliminate the possibility of having a private insurance plan. And that that means that if you're sort of comparing the situation, an unvaccinated person in America could be threatened with literally no other alternative. You know, there's no way that they could pay for health care at all unless they decide to get vaccinated. And I just think that's a, a travesty. It would be just one of the worst things we could see happen to our country. Let's let's underline that last point too. Tell us about Jason Wilson and his story. Yeah, yeah. So Jason Wilson, it's it's kind of a crazy example. Um, you know, Jason Wilson had a, a kidney disease and um, was on a transplant list. I think he was on the transplant list for over a decade waiting and you know thankfully he had survived that long um and now with all of the covid world changing around him he was removed from the transplant list at his local hospital just because he decided not to get vaccinated and so what we're seeing here fortunately for jason he has the freedom in america to go find a different hospital that will allow him to be on a transplant list. I mean, obviously it's still a huge um, upending of, of his plans, but, but he still has the freedom to do that. If Medicare for all were to pass, he would have none of those options. He would, he would be stuck in a situation where he would either have to decide, do I want a chance to survive another couple of decades or 
or am I going to, you know, take this shot that I don't think is right for me? Yeah, it's it seems like a really difficult uh, dilemma. And I and in fact, it's like being on the horns of a dilemma. Look, either you allow government to, to do this, to, to make sure that everybody has access and and government, of course, will do its very best to try to, you know, apply things as universally as possible, like like taxes. You know, <laughs> but mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the downside is it can also be politicized, which means it can be turned around and and weaponized against people who. Who are, um, shall we say, not on board with uh, whomever happens to be in power at the moment. Exactly, exactly. And that's something I think we've seen time again, whether it's, you know, the the on and off rumblings of Dr. Fauci or other different political actors, is that this is a pandemic that's, you know, supposed to be about people's health. And time and time again, we've seen the the public health establishment really seeking its own interests and not the interests of the public health. And so I think it's just a, a stark example of, of why, why those freedoms that we have are something that we should be looking to build upon and not to give up. And I think that Medicare for all is just something that we're going to see ourselves giving up a freedom that we're going to have a hard time taking back. Yeah, it sounds like uh, we, we face the, the prospect of if, if you give up, you know, some of that security of having government to make it for everybody, you're going to have a measure of freedom that will nonetheless be more useful in the long run. I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah, people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell people where they can find you online, either on social media or find your writings. Um, yeah, so I'm a contributor at Young Voices. Uh, that's mostly where I do my work. I might have a couple of pieces coming through uh, at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, so you can look for the website there. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are pleased to welcome Tex Fisher to the show. Tex, this is your first time on. In addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us about who you are and what makes you tick. Sure. Thanks for having me, Brian. So I'm a uh, Republican political strategist based in Northeast Ohio. I work primarily in digital media um, and my firm works all across the country, but Ohio is where I call home and the area that, that I care about the most. So that's really what makes me tick. All right. I'm looking for uh, an article. I'm looking at rather an article that you wrote for uh, Cincinnati.com, The Inquirer, and you point out it's redistricting season in America. And my first thought is, ooh, that always seems to be a topic that's, uh, that's, that's a bit contentious. Why is redistricting so, uh, so much a, a political tug of war? Sure. So uh, redistricting, it's, it's definitely not a new thing, but I think the last couple of cycles have definitely, um, definitely taken on a, a new level of intensity. I think social media has a lot to do with that. Um, I think the, the vast network of national special interest groups on both the left and the right um, have definitely contributed towards it being a little bit of a higher stakes process than it might have been in, in decades prior. But I think the biggest driver of that is social media. OK. And, and of course, it seems like uh, I'm, I'm not trying to just pin this on one side or the other, but it seems like anytime someone is redaw- redrawing political districts, there's always an eye towards how can we work this to our advantage? Talk to me about what you see in your home state of Ohio and, and how is it uh, how is it exposing hypocrisy? Absolutely. So, um, you know, part of part of the whole crux of the article that I wrote was that redistricting is an inherently political exercise. I think people, when they try and make it about fairness and these very aspirational, lofty, you know, words that we typically hear from folks on the left side of the aisle, um, I think it's it's fundamentally dishonest. I don't think there's ever been 
an example um, anywhere in the country in the last couple of cycles where there hasn't been a, a pretty strong political angle towards redistricting, even in the even in the states where they have the so-called independent redistricting commissions, um, you still end up with pretty partisan partisan outcomes. A great example of that would be California, where they drew 40 plus um, out of their states, I believe 53 congressional seats to be safe Democrat. Um, obviously, California is a very blue state, but I don't think it's quite that blue. So even when you have the you know the politicians totally removed from the process with with good faith intentions, um, the result still ends up being kind of partisan. So I really don't think there's any way around that. Um, I Where I take issue is when Democrats in particular, particularly in my state of Ohio, um, shroud their own political self-interest in this language of fairness and decency. And um, it's just very dishonest because they're, they're really not looking for fairness. They're looking for favorable outcomes for themselves, which is totally fine. Um, I don't take issue with a political party pursuing their own self-interest. I think that's kind of the the nature of politics, but I take issue with the dishonest language, and I think they're lying to voters. Now, does this boil down to uh, simply, you know, uh, an expression of the rural versus urban divide, or or is it a little more nuanced than that? So I think it's um, I think it's it's a little more nuanced than that. In Ohio, we're dealing with some some pretty significant shifts in our in our voter base. So the part of of Ohio where I'm from, which is the Mahoning Valley in Northeast Ohio, is one of the biggest swings from left to right over the past decade. Um, so I think that also plays plays a major role into how these these maps are drawn, particularly at the uh, state legislative level. We're dealing with 99 House districts and 33 Senate districts. is a lot more, um, you know, a lot more wiggle room than the 15 congressional districts that we're dealing with. Um, and the state legislative maps are the ones that are currently held up in the Supreme Court. Um, so we're facing most likely a split primary where we're going to have pretty much everybody except for state house and state senate races on the ballot on may 3rd Um, but because of the ongoing litigation the state house and state senate races are likely not going to be decided until a special election in august now as you point out in your article this isn't just a a matter of polite disagreement of well i think that could be done better i mean there are phrases being thrown about like an assault on democracy or shameful abuse of power are, are those words rooted in reality or is this just political rhetoric turned up to 11 Oh, absolutely not. There's no basis in reality for this. Um, I point out in the article that there was in the initial redistricting period back last fall, um, Democrats last best offer. So they branded it. It was actually more favorable to Republicans in the last two sets of maps that were passed by the redistricting commission after being rejected by the Supreme Court, as far as like raw top line numbers go. Um, so I think it's fundamentally dishonest. I don't think there's any basis in reality for that type of language. I think it is a very, very dishonest group of people driven by national influences, Eric Holder, Mark Elias, um, all sorts of national democratic figures whose objective is basically just to clog up the redistricting process in Ohio courts for as long as humanly possible, which they've done a great job of doing. Um, since we're we're not going to have this decided on May 3rd, we're going to have most of this decided in August. So props to them for being successful in managing to drag out what should have been a process that wrapped up in September, October of last year, now running into April uh, of the following year. So I don't think there's any basis in reality there. I think it is just um, hyperbolic nonsense being pushed by Democrats and their allies. I'm certainly not trying to excuse, you know, the, the politicking that goes on with this kind of redistricting Uh, it's very clear it's a power struggle they want power and they're not uh, they're not eager to give up what power they have are there any states or any other places you can can look to as examples of how to do this uh, efficiently equitably you know to where uh, it it doesn't become such a politicized uh, melodrama 
Um, no, I, I really don't think there's a way to take politics out of redistricting. Um, like I mentioned earlier, even the states with the, the independent commission still end up having a partisan bent because you're not going to be able to find enough people with, I guess, enough of an interest or an expertise in political map making that aren't going to have their own agendas. So I think it's just an inherently political process. And there are a lot of guardrails that some states have put in place, including Ohio, which I thought were well-intentioned, things that I voted for. Um, you know, minimizing county county splits for the congressional map. I think that's a common sense thing. You want to keep communities together. Those are objectives that I think people on both sides of the aisle agree with in theory. Um, where it becomes difficult in practice is with a state like Ohio, you have Democratic voters concentrated in basically three areas and very minimally dispersed outside of those three areas. So outside of the three C's, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, there are not really critical masses of, of Democratic voters um, to really draw enough competitive or blue leaning congressional districts to match the objectives of, you know, top line um, fairness or a top line breakdown that matches your typical statewide election results, which is one of the one of the criteria in the constitutional amendments passed over the last few years in Ohio, which have kind of led to this process was um, in addition to the county splits and not splitting municipalities, which were common sense. They also included language saying that the breakdowns of these maps have to closely align with the partisan preferences of voters over the previous decade. So there's a lot of discussion about what that means. Republicans contend that number is higher um, than, Demo De than Democrats do, um, obviously. But that has been the major sticking point was proportionality. Um, but it's it's tough. You know, a state like Wisconsin um, is dealing with a similar issue. They are a much more competitive state at the federal level. The last two presidential elections, you know, they're between one or two points, whereas Ohio has been a eight plus percentage point win for Republicans, both of the last two presidential elections. So it's a little bit different. Um, but Wisconsin, they kind of I guess they kind of gave up on, on their objectives of trying to get a um, of getting an even map as far as the breakdown goes for the congressional side, um, whereas Ohio that it's a lot harder to get there. You have to you have to think a lot more outside the box, so to speak. And to do that, you end up having to split municipalities and break up communities of interest all for the sake of pursuing that top line number that's fav more favorable to Democrats. Tex, is this something that matters to the voters or is this something that just kind of plays in the background and the voters don't really sit up and pay attention until actual election times come around? So I, I don't think this is as big of an issue on the mind of voters as as some people think. Um, right now, if you talk to the average person in this area, they have no idea who they're voting for. Um, they probably just figured out who their representative was over the past couple of years because we've had a um, you know, we've had a couple of, of election swings and the you know left to right shift that my area has seen in particular. So I don't think voters are, are spending a whole lot of time thinking about how redistricting affects them. I think they just want to understand who their options are and start to educate themselves. Um, and I think I think particularly Democrats make this into a much bigger issue than it is. And, and honestly, Democrats have been running on gerrymandering for the past 10 years and they've won two statewide elections in that time frame. And both of those were Senator Sherrod Brown. Um, they haven't won governor's race, they haven't won any other statewide offices um, with partisan labels on them outside of the Supreme Court um, pretty much in the last decade. So if, if they want to continue to run on this, more power to them. I don't think it's really an argument that resonates with the voters, especially when we're seeing, when we're seeing you know, gas prices over $4 or Ohio is, uh, you know, we're well known for our corruption. Unfortunately, we had a pretty explosive bribery scandal over the past couple of years. So um, I don't think voters are, are sitting around at night thinking about redistricting, but um, that's that's just my my take on it. For for those voters, or at least the for the person who wants to get their mind around the importance of redistricting, um, are there any good resources to turn to outside of the political parties themselves? It sounds like Republicans <laughs> have gerrymandered too, so it's not like they can they can necessarily claim the the moral high mm -hmm. ground. But it seems like um, 
there, there has to be some place people could become better informed and, and better engaged to, to make this uh, less of an issue. Sure. Um, as far as, as resources and organizations point you to, I probably couldn't point you to a, a truly objective, um, an objective or fair analysis of that or all the organizations that work on redistricting have their own agendas. A great example of that is also here in Ohio, where the League of Women Voters is very much um, walking in lockstep with the Democrats in this state, um, really along every step of the way. They basically promised to, to sue and challenge the maps before they were even unveiled um, back during the initial redistricting period. So there, there really are no good nonprofit organizations that I'm aware of um, for how to get good information on this. I would suggest people spend a little bit of time researching things themselves, not just reading talking points from Republicans or Democrats on Twitter is do a little bit of a deep dive, look at the maps, you can look at election results. 538 has a lot of great resources um, that are database and obviously they have their own editorialization in some, in some areas, but um, they're a great source for getting fairly decent data. And, you know, I, I found that actually a lot of folks on Twitter are really good at this. We're talking with Tex Fisher from Young Voices. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our final segment today, and we are happy to welcome Leslie Corbley. She is a Young Voices contributor as well as a policy analyst for Libertas Institute. And uh, Leslie, tell us anything else about yourself that uh, you would want our audience to know. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. My my name, as you know, all is Leslie Corbley, and I really focus my area of work on privacy and individual rights, sort of that intersection of why a fundamental sense of privacy is very important for individual rights and for human flourishing in general and for the advancement of free societies. So that's what I do. Okay, I'm looking at an op-ed that you wrote for the Ogden Standard Examiner. Latest CIA revelations show clear need for privacy protections. And, and people can't see it, but I'm nodding my head enthusiastically. Talk to me about these latest CIA revelations and, and what we can learn from them. Sure. So what these latest re- revelations show is that federal norms involving bulk data collection is what specifically highlights that need for states to push back against invasive policing practices. So these revelations show that um, in relation to how information is collected, retained, and stored is not really done in a, in a private manner. Shocker. I know uh, most of our listeners probably are not surprised to hear that the Central Intelligence Agency <laughs> collects bulk data. Um, but as it turns out, Senators Wyden of Oregon and Heinrich, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, of New Mexico, um, wrote a letter in April of last year. Um, and that letter led to information coming out uh, that shows that there's even more of a greater need for transparency than previously known. And again, that relates to the collection, retention and use of data that the CIA collects. Um, So again, this is not a new problem. It's, It's actually quite an old one, which is that the federal norms surrounding the use of data are, are kind of inverted from what you would want. You know, those norms are to extend virtually no privacy protections to uh, individuals. So that's that's a big problem. Uh, states can and should push back against this, understanding the problem for what it is and recognizing that privacy is fundamental uh, to human freedom. Okay, now I'm going to push back a little bit and play devil's advocate just a little bit, Leslie. But we live in such a dangerous world, some will say. Why, how could we possibly allow there to be privacy when somebody could be up to no good? Your answer? 
Sure. Uh, we've always lived in a dangerous world. Uh, uh, there's never been a time in history, in human history, where there has not been danger, and even significant danger. Indeed, we live in a much safer time now than, than in other eras. So I, I would argue that. And then as well, that when you erode the rule of law, um, there, there are severe consequences for that. So some of these executive orders and, and issues that have brought up privacy concerns date back to even the 1980s. And this one in particular relates back to executive order 12333, uh, labeled Central Intelligence Agency Deep Dive 2. So these are old problems. Um, and it's, it's not new to hear that the think there's danger, there's national security concerns, so on and so forth. And that being said, as a as someone who cares about privacy, I do also care about national security. And there is no, I don't think that there needs to be that same dichotomy that a lot of people see with that issue. Um, we can protect our national security interests without abandoning the right to privacy. And indeed, I would argue that we go down a very troubling road when we walk away from privacy and are willing to allow federal agencies to operate outside the scope of law, because that's very dangerous for citizens. Um, what's most dangerous, I would argue, for citizens is not actually what's out there in, in foreign lands. But if your government inverts on you and turns on you um, and begins to see private citizens uh, as as not citizens, really, you know, as, as, as if they can act outside the law, I think you're in a lot more danger than you otherwise would be. That is a magnificent answer. <laughs> you you uh, you answered that extremely well. Now, um, if I'm not mistaken, you work in Lehigh, Utah, or at least you yes, with, that with is where Libertas. I work. And I, I used to live in Lehigh, Utah, and just out there across from the point of the mountain was the great big NSA data collection center, which was <laughs> celebrated when it came to the state of Utah as oh, but look at all the jobs this is going to create. And it seems like very few people from the politicians on down stop to consider what that really represents as a giant vacuum that's sucking up every bit of information about all of us just in case someday it needs to make a case against us. I wonder why so few people were able to see the, the potential shortfalls of something like that or pitfalls of that. I, I think it's it's an easy problem to ignore unless you're actively involved um, in an investigation that's gone sideways or if there's something that's really impacting your day to day life. I think a lot of people sort of have that latent understanding of it in the back of their head that, oh, there's no privacy, but that's just the way the world is going right now, uh, which is. Which is true to a degree. I mean, we are trending that direction, I would argue, for the worse, uh, which is why there's hope that we can right the ship um, and that, that states could be on the forefront of that, as they have been in other administrative contexts. So, again, one of the central issues being that this involves agencies stepping outside the boundaries of their constitutional um, obligations, duties, abilities, so on and so forth, and sort of uh, amassing more power than they should have. Uh, so to the extent that that's the problem, there, there has been state pushback wanting to bring agency power back within the purview of, of the constitutional boundary, which would be that they'd not step beyond the separation of powers. Uh, so I think that that's a really great a really great trend that we're seeing at the state level. And Utah has been involved in that, um, which, is, which is fantastic to see. Talk to me about what Utah has done. I know they've been one of the states that it's actually led out in terms of privacy. What what have they done? So Utah has done some has really emerged as a leader um, nationally in privacy. Our, on the Supreme Court side, so on the judicial side, uh, Utah Supreme Court has rejected what's called the doctrine of deference. Uh, that was uh, that's a supreme a federal Supreme Court doctrine related to how judges should view. 
um, lower court rulings as it relates to administrative procedures. So not to get too in the weeds with that, but essentially the Chevron doctrine stated that judges should have a deferential stance towards administrative agency action. And um, the, the pushback against that is really rejecting that and saying, no, there's there's separation of powers and recognizing the agencies sort of are engaging in both judicial, legislative and executive functions. And therefore, that, that's a massing power they should not have. So they rejected that deference, which is fantastic. Um, in 2019, Utah passed the Electronic Information or Data Privacy Act, and that ensures that your electronic uh, information is free from warrantless searches, which is obviously fantastic on that end. And that really undercuts sort of that third party doctrine at the Supreme Court level, which, you know, holds that when you put your information out to a third party, that's almost all electronic information flows through a third party. You have a much a reduced uh, expectation of privacy. So that starts to rein that in and ensure that citizens in Utah can be uh, feel secure in their person's papers and effects, whether that's physical or digital. Um, and we also created uh, through legislation, a position for state privacy, privacy officer and commission. And these are designed to ensure state agencies are um, upholding individual privacy rights. So ensuring that whatever practices they put in place for the implementation of administrative action. So as we know, agencies implement all kinds of things um, from, you know, welfare benefits to uh, dealing with roads and bridges, all kinds of local things. Um, wanting to make sure that that's done with privacy in mind um, and how you're collecting storing and using data is clear and respects privacy interests. And then we also had a legislative win this past session, which is fantastic. Um, as it turns out, the Department of Health, unfortunately, was um, requiring new mothers once they had their children to uh, fill out a very invasive 100 question survey in order to access their children's birth certificate. So they could not either leave the hospital or file an application for a birth certificate without filling out the survey. That survey was being used for research purposes. It asked uh, very invasive questions, everything from neonatal care, uh, your use of vitamins, your use of contraceptives, whether you were using a surrogate, on and on and on. So this was all for, for research. Academics could then pay um, to access this information and clearly under the individual uh, privacy rights of citizens and also their informed consent. Um, they've just gone through labor. This is not great. So uh, Utah passed a law that addressed that and, and scaled that back and, and made sure that, that new mothers knew the information that was required for the birth certificate was clearly delineated from that information that was purely voluntary. So it does not stop people from gathering research information if they're interested in providing that, but um, making it clear what's required by law versus what is <laughs> completely up to the consent of the individual. All right, Leslie, we're down to about one minute. I understand there are other states that are also starting to take some pretty serious steps towards privacy. Can you mention any of them? Yes, uh, you have Michigan, Maryland, and Montana that have also worked on these issues. And also New York, uh, surprisingly, I believe introduced, I don't remember the bill number, but introduced a um a bill recently that would also ban warrantless searches of digital information. So it's fantastic to see other states jump on board, even ones like New York, where you may not um, kind of expect to have a lot of overlap and agreement with them. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate your efforts. I appreciate what you're doing, not only as a Young Voices contributor, but also as a policy analyst for Libertas Institute. Um, Connor and, and the team there have done a lot to move the needle in the right direction toward freedom. So please give my regards to your team. 
Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be on. And I really appreciate you um, giving me this opportunity and allowing me to talk to your listeners. Okay. Thanks again for being our guest. Is, by the way, is there a place people can follow you on social media? Yes. Um, I'm on social media at Wesley Corbley on primarily on Twitter. That's almost pretty much my main platform right now. Um, and all my articles flow through there. Everything I do, uh, all these updates you'll see on my Twitter feed. 